we're back in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. I confess, I am no way I'm going to make it through 11 this morning. Um, the richness and depth of this text is profound, uh, but we will get through it in the coming weeks. Verse 5, though, we will start here. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. We are about ready to play a video for you, just a very, very short clip. It is of a man who is very elderly, but he is a, a hero of the faith. His name is G.I. Packard. And most of us um, in the ministry, and I trust even anyone else, has read the book Knowing God. I think this was the first deeply theological book I ever read as a young person. And it profoundly gripped me, mainly because it's so full of scripture and so strongly uh, written of who God is and what he has done for us. G.I. Packer put out, they put out a video of him here this last year and I came upon it this last week and it really fits with where we're going today of understanding what you believe and how that directs our behavior. So as we play this video, listen to this and then we'll come back and we'll get into the word of God. Faith is the basis of Christian life. But the problem nowadays is that people don't know what faith is. The church is in trouble. You'd agree with that, wouldn't you? The trouble is that we are not taking our God seriously enough. What's the proof of that? Why that we're not taking his word seriously enough? And we're not making sure that our faith matches the teaching of scripture. We don't even seem to be interested in finding out. That's not good enough. Maybe you call yourself a Christian, but do you know what Christian truth really is? Could you explain your faith? Do you base it on the Bible? Could you defend it against challenges? Faith is the most momentous reality that I can think of. We need to know what we believe. We need to be able to defend it when it's challenged. And we need to have reason for relying on it as a basis for our lives. Father, we thank you this morning that we will open our Bibles and we will learn from your truth. We thank you that this is a church that holds to the word of God. We believe it is inerrant, it is infallible. We believe it has authority to speak to our lives. We believe it's clear, Lord, that it, that it has the message of God that he wants us to hear today and every day. It is not based on the way we think or what we want it to say. It is truth, Lord. So Father, I pray that we will continue as a church to base our belief on the Bible, the word of God. And that even this morning, Lord, as we break forth into deep truths of God's word, 
that our faith would be strengthened. And it wouldn't just be strengthened for strength's sake, Lord. But Lord, I plead with you that it would change our behavior, that it would strengthen our godly behavior. There would be a result to doctrine in our life. So Lord, bless this time in your word for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. J.I. Packard said in that video about faith, he said, we need to have reason for relying on it for the basis of our lives. We need to have reason. We need to study God's word. Our faith is strengthened by what we believe. It's strengthened in the source of what it comes from. The men who stand in this pulpit, not only myself, but fellow pastor elders that stand here, we believe that the word of God is what we are to preach. And we know because it transformed our life and we want it to transform your life and we want to grow together in the word of God. So the Bible teaches us doctrine. It teaches us great doctrines of the scripture. Think about the doctrine of the Bible. We believe, I prayed that, that it is inerrant, it's infallible, it's clear and authoritative. You can go online and read our doctrinal statement about what we believe about the Bible. We believe in the doctrine of God. We believe that he is almighty. He, he holds all things in his hands. He is creator, sustainer. We believe in the doctrine of Christ, the son of God, fully equal to God, that he come and he did what no man could do. He did what none of us could do. He bridged the gap between God and man. See, the doctrines of the scriptures cause us to worship. And I'm convinced that doctrine has to change behavior. And, and we have to not be just those who store up knowledge, but those who drink in truth. Mr. Packard said this, he says, does our faith match the truthfulness of Scripture? Does our faith match the truthfulness of Scripture? Through the years... Gene and I have watched families that have fought doctrine. They fought truth. And, and because mom and dad fought it, the, parent, the children didn't want it. And they got to a secular college or somewhere in the world and, and quickly they fell away. See, doctrine drives us. The doctrines of the scriptures drive our behavior. The doctrine of God drives marriage. Because he decided on marriage. See, the doctrine of God drives parenting because he gave and gives to you children. See, doctrine drives how we live this life. Churches today, I hear this often, too often. Some churches say doctrine is not important. We just need to live for Jesus. Now, we talk about living for Jesus, right? We, we talk about that a lot. But unfortunately, there's no weight behind that without the doctrine of the scriptures to support what we believe. And, and what I want to do this morning, and I think what Paul, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced what Paul is trying to do here, is that I want to prove to you this morning that you can't live for Jesus without doctrine, you can't worship like we did this morning without doctrine. Doctrine of the scriptures. The writer of Hebrews said it this way, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe. If you look at our statement of faith online, it'll say, we believe and teach, right? We believe and teach. And statement after statement, we believe and teach. We believe and teach. The rest of the verse goes on and says that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. See, he saves us, and we start diligently seeking him. And that's what we do here. We study God's word to, to go after him. Now, look at our checks here. I know we took six weeks for missions, which was wonderful, and we'll never stop talking about missions, though missions month is over. We're big on missions 
but we turn to the book of Philippians, and if you remember last, we, look at, we looked at the first four verses. And there was this mindset that Apostle Paul is challenging the church of Philippi, writing God's word, so thus it's challenging us today, thousands of years later, challenging us to say, what are we doing with our minds? Are they set on the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there desire for unity and love, for, for putting aside selfishness and empty conceit, learning to acknowledge one another over ourselves, having true unconditional love for one another. He challenges us as he opens this part of the letter. He challenges us what we're doing. And then he does one of the most amazing things. He takes one of the most deepest, mysterious doctrines of the Bible to teach us to be humil- have humility like Jesus. He takes what we refer to in a theological word, the hypostatic union of Christ, the, the nature of Christ that he's both God and man. He, this is a doctrine that, that, that ranks with the Trinity when we're trying to wrestle with it. He's both fully God and fully man, and he's taking that doctrinal truth to teach us about humility. See why doctrine's important? Paul thinks it's important. Why didn't he just say, hey, you guys need to be humble like Jesus and move on? Why didn't he say, just be like Jesus? Humble yourself. Now let's talk about some other things. He takes one of the most glorious doctrines of Christology, within Christology, of Christ adding flesh, adding humanity to his deity, and yet remaining fully God to teach us how to live out these verses. Do you get that? Do you see that? He's using deep doctrine to teach us how to walk in this life. Now, I have four points in your bulletin and up behind me, but I think I'm only going to get to a couple of them. But this is worth swimming around in the deep end for a little while because we're going to learn from this. First of all, the doctrine of Christ drives our behavior, verse 5. Notice this. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. The doctrine of Christ drives our behavior. Have this attitude. This thinking is the word here. Have this thinking. It's, it's an interesting word. It's in a present, present tense, but it's an imperative. Not think about thinking this way. <laughs> no, have, do this. It's an imperative. This is the way Christians should live their life, is what Paul is saying. There's not a discussion here. It's not a maybe you should do this. It has, have this attitude. And notice that this attitude is clearly apparent in Christ. He says, which was in Christ, Jesus. So there's an attitude that he's wanting us to have. And here from the inspired by the Spirit, the Scriptures, Paul does this amazing thing. He says, I want to teach you humility through doctrine. Now, when we start to think about why Paul is using this tremendous doctrinal truth, it has its own astounding thought to it. When you read this passage, you read 6 down through 11 here, there isn't any argument in this time. This is first century church. Christ is uh, been ascended on high now 30 years or so. Paul is planting churches This church is being planted in Philippi and he's writing a letter to them from prison. There is, when you look at this text, there's no discussion on whether this is true or not. Is Jesus really God? Maybe we should discuss that a little farther, Paul. See, there's no discussion. He lays out this doctrine as though it's completely understood. And it was in the early church. It was absolutely held to that Jesus was both God and man and there was no hotly debated religious arguments over whether he was fully God and fully man. Fully accepted. And Paul said this needs to drive the behavior of the first century church. However, like then, as is now, man continues to think more highly of himself. Is that not true today? More than ever. Make a name for yourself. Get on a reality show. Get noticed. 
You've got to figure out how you can get noticed. See, these are issues back in Paul's day, because clearly he wrote about this, right? Has man changed a whole lot? He gets more creative in his fallenness, but when he fell in the garden in chapter 3, is he, are we more fallen today than, than the garden? I think theologically, when man fell, man fell. He's creative. He has more technological ways to be creative, but he fell. Go back to the garden, Cain and Abel, and go, well, that's a picture of absolute depravity of man. The two first kids on the earth, one kills the other. I, I, I want to bring what I want to bring. I want you, God, to accept me the way I am. And I need to get rid of the one who is drawing the tension away from how I want to do something. See, see, this has been a problem with man from the beginning. In fact, here it's still a problem in the early church. Paul proves this in his point in the book of 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians, but particularly in 1 Corinthians, that the church was so selfish that it could not handle the gifts God had given them in a proper way. Now, the problem with fallen man is he's following his fallen, fallen father. Isaiah chapter 14, just listen to this verse. See if you can catch the tone of Satan and the tone of man. Isaiah 14, verse 13 and 14. But you said in your heart, now this is a reference to the heart of Satan, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. Where does all this pride and arrogance in our world come from? It comes from their father. The father of lies. Look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 3 real quick. There's a synopsis at the end of Paul's life of man in this chapter. It's a little snapshot of the heart of man. It was true in Paul's day and is true today. Paul's saying that we should have this thinking. We, we, it's, it's imperative that we think and we have this attitude like Christ. Here's what the world says. Chapter 3, verse 1, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self. I will ascend. I will be like the most high. Men will be lovers of money. Boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. Sorry, kids, that one got slipped in there. This is, the, this is what leads to all of this stuff. Ungrateful, unholy. Unholy is absent of evil. This means full of evil. Unloving, irreconcilable, malice gossips without self-control, brooders. Look at this last one in, in verse 3. Haters of God. Because God stands in the way of what man's will is. I want that. And God's word says no. And so I will push by God. There is no bones to be picked with God's definition of marriage. And yet, the world and, and some that call themselves the church turn a, a, turn a blind eye to what God has laid down. They're haters of God. They're haters of what is good. They're treacherous. They're reckless. They're conceited. They're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And now look at the last verse 5 here. This is most disturbing. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. So on the outside, people can look Christianese or moralistic in some way. And yet... All of this is within their hearts. And, and, and Christian, be careful. All of these things lie in our hearts. They, they do, they're there. And if it was not for the Lord Jesus Christ to give us strength to overcome, these things come out of us, right? 
In fact, as we go down through this, there are things here that if we were brutally honest, we would say, hmm, I tend sometimes to engage in those things. So we realize they're there. And so Paul says, don't have this mindset. Have the mind of Christ. Have the attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ. Learn to work on that. See, the problem with man is he thinks that he must continue to rise. He has to get greater and greater. He needs more money, more power, more recognition. The Bible says just the opposite. The Bible says, well, you want the way up? You got to go down. It, it literally, the Bible teaches over and over that the way up is the way down. Go down and go up. The Lord Jesus Christ in this text, as you turn back to Philippians chapter 2, proves that. He proves that the way up was the way down. He came down. He left his throne above. He adds humanity to him. He perfectly handles both deity and humanity in order to die for our sins. And so this is what Paul's doing. Paul, Paul is teaching us that the way down is the way up. And Christ is this absolutely glorious example. In fact, one writer said this. He said, in this text, we see the great sweep of the life of Christ. Have this glorious attitude, this glorious person as, you, as your mindset, as your direction, who came down, lowered himself, took on flesh so that he might die, even the death of a cross, so that he would be exalted at the name of Jesus Christ, at that name every knee would bow. Do you see that? He's laying out the example of how we to live with the deep doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, this great doctrine of Christ is meant to drive our behavior. Second thought, his deity demands our humility. His deity demands our humility. Look at verse six in part of seven. Although who, it's referring back to the Lord Jesus Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. We'll stop right there. See, man's biggest problem is he rejects Jesus as God. That's, that's his biggest problem. It, it's been a problem down through the ages. It's been a problem in the church. They have constantly fought against the fact that Jesus is fully God. And the result has been disastrous. You can study a little bit of church history. Go back to the 4th century. In 325, there was a man named Arius. He believed that it was impossible that Jesus Christ was fully God. And he separated his humanity from his deity and said there's no way he could be that. Eventually, he ended up in front of the council of the church Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea in 325, and as time went on, he was put out of the church. He continued to teach his doctrines till he died. He taught that Jesus was not God. So the problem with that, as soon as you teach that Jesus is not God, then there must be another way to God. Do you understand that? If he's not God and has all authority and perfection and righteousness to be able to bring me and present me righteous before the Father, if he is not God, then there must be another way, and that's going to have to be something on my end to get it accomplished, right? The church recognized this in the excommunicated areas. He ended up in Egypt, worked his way down into South Africa, and there he began to teach that Jesus was not God. From there, a large following continued to follow Arius. He died, his followers took it, and his followers took it, and his followers took it. One night, a young man came and heard that Jesus was not God, but yet he was a great prophet, and his ways should be an example to all of us. That night, he had a dream, a satanic dream. And that dream was that Satan told him he was the next prophet like Jesus. His name is Muhammad. 
See how doctrine, when you turn from the doctrines of scriptures, how dangerous they are? Today, the father of the modern movement of Jehovah Witnesses, Arius. We have thousands of people around the world who believe that Jesus is not God. And so when they come to your door, you can talk about Jesus and they'll say he's a good man and he's a good example for you. But they'll say that you must do your part. You must match your works so that you can be justified by your works before a holy God. It's a lie from the pit. It's a lie from the pit because you'll stand before God someday and you'll say, look what I did. I'm justified by my works. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. You didn't come through the narrow gate. The narrow gate is Jesus. You don't come with your luggage. It's like Disneyland, you know, getting through the turnstile. You got to take the strollers through the other gate. You don't get all this. Hey, can I get this in? No, you can't bring that in. It's one person at a time. You don't come in with, well, I'm here because my parents are saved. You come through Jesus. So Paul is working very hard by the inspiration of the scriptures to help us understand how to have this attitude that Christ has. And so he turns to the great doctrine of the hypostatic union. The the nature of, of Christ was both man and both God, and yet he holds, he holds the very essence, the very glory of God completely. Now, you say, well, where is this taught? Well, you know where it's taught. John 1 1 says what? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. Nobody can be with God and stand equality with him. But the word was. And the word was God. Paul is not teaching a new doctrine here. He's teaching what Jesus taught. Of his own self. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. A passage that so many of us love so deeply because it's so crystal centric. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 He, the context is Christ and how he qualifies us and makes us sons and and brings us out of the darkness and and into the kingdom that is of Jesus and and how we have redemption and forgiveness. And then it turns to attention that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You can't see God. You want to see him? Look to Jesus. Exactly what the apostle said. John said, we beha- the flesh came and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory of the begotten of God. I mean, he, he said, you want to see Jesus? You want to see God? Look at Jesus. And here Paul says the same thing. For he is the image of the invisible God. And then he says this term, the firstborn of all creation. And, and here so many trip up on this. Because they think it's, he was birthed in this creation. But that's not the idea. Know your history. Understand Jewish writing. Understand Hebrew. He's firstborn, meaning he's equality with his father. Everything the father has, the son has. It's a statement of equality. It always has been a statement of equality. You can't change that. That has been written down from the beginning. That's why the birthright was so important to Jacob and Esau. Because that's what the word of God taught Over and over. Now notice the rest of this verse. For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created. I can't even create breakfast. You mean to tell me that he's he's just a mere man that the spirit indwelt for a short time here on earth and then left them at his death? These are all fallacies and teachings that are not true within religious circles. And yet our Bible says he created, he spoke into creation all things. You want to trust creation with man? I think we almost do that with the teaching that is out there on evolution. You're trusting it in man's hands. We we must be careful of that. He has to be God. So everything Genesis 1 tells us, we understand here. Um, Colossians 1 is almost a commentary to your Genesis 1. Notice this. Not only is he creator, for by him all things were created, both in heavens and earth, visible and invisible. Oh, we got to talk about this for a moment. Molecules, protons, neutrons. I don't even know what that stuff is, but I'm trying to talk like I do. 
There's the things I can't see. The Bible's clear. Jesus is the judge. And, and people often me, you know, can you really believe 2 Peter chapter 3 that he's going to destroy the heavens and the earth? I said, yeah. Because he, he, look at this, he upholds all things. In verse 17, and so he just merely takes his hands off and everything goes, it's just gone. He's holding together the air that you breathe right now. And yet men down through the ages now have said he's just merely a man. He is not the way to God. Not in my Bible. His thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, these are all created by him. The angelic world. All things have been created through him and for him. That means he can use them as he pleases. It's not up to man. It's up to him. They're his. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I love that term. He holds things together. Look with me one more text. We have to look at Hebrews chapter 1, a parallel text to this. God, after he spoke in Long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways in these last days have spoken to us literally in son, in Jesus. I like that. We put in the his there to identify it. He's spoken in Jesus. Whom he appointed heir of all things. Remember he is firstborn of all creation. He's the rightful owner of everything God has because he's God and he shares these things equally with the father. That's God's part. Through whom also he made the world. Now look at the rest of this. He, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory. The exact representation of his nature. And upholds all things by the power of his word. He upholds all things. See, this is the God part of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the exact representation. He radiance. Of, the, of his glory. We think of the Shekinah glory. I'm reading through the Old Testament right now, my personal reading. I'm in Leviticus and I'm in Numbers and, and, the, and the tabernacle's being built and the glory of God is coming and dwelling in it. He is that brightness of God, the Bible tells us. And when you see him, when we sing and when we hear him preached, you glow because you've been in his presence. Now look at the human part of him here in this last part of the verse. And when he made purification of sin, so he had to add flesh so he could die, so he could purify us, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What a beautiful verse. Now turn back to Philippians chapter 2 and look how this flushes out in this text. This is what exactly he's saying in verse 6 who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. There's a few words that I just want to pick out to help you get your mind around this a little bit this morning. Is the word form maybe in your Bible, it says. It is a Greek word, morphe. It means being the very nature God or existing in the form of God or was in the form of God. It, that, that's how your translation will, will say. The Greek word literally points out that the, the outward shape of an object is equal to the inward part that cannot be detected on the surface or seen. It's a fascinating word. Can I, can I read that again to you? It points out that the outward shape of an object is equal to the inward part that cannot be detected on the surface. That's what it does. So he is outwardly, this means that Jesus was outwardly in the form of a man, but inwardly he existed completely equality in inequality with God. It's amazing. That's why people write songs like, Mary, did you know when you kissed the face of your baby, you were kissing the face of God. That's where this stuff comes from. That's where people writing music and preaching sermons, they're coming, they're coming right out of this stuff. He's God. There's another word in this that 
I think really will help drive this home. And it's the word isos. And it comes a little farther down. It says, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word we translate equality or equal there is this word a word. We get an English word isometrics from it. Isometric means to have equal measurement. Our language that we speak today is based on the truth of the word of God. This stuff just comes out. He's not using, not making up words. That's why when Paul wrote these things, or particularly, let's go back to Jesus' life, when he said, I and the Father are one, it burned them. They knew exactly what he was saying. I've had people tell me, well, when I read the book of John, I don't think he's God. Well, you're not reading the book of John. Because the people who hated him said, I know exactly what he's saying, and we're going to kill you. We're going to stone you because he says, which of these things are you going to stone me for? We're not stoning you for the good things you're doing because you make yourself out equal to be good with God. They got it. But today, people twist and turn the book of John and try to say, well, he's, you know, he's a son. He's, he's lesser, right? Here's, there's God, and then here's him, and so on. How dangerous that is. We get the word isomer from this, which is this. It's fascinating. I looked this one up this week. It is a molecule having a slightly different structure from another molecule outwardly, but being identical with it in terms of chemical elements and weights. So Christ adds, think about this word, he adds an outward humanity to him that's not really, if you look at him as he walked on this earth for 33 years, you wouldn't look at this outward appearance that he has and say, oh, that's God. But everything in him was God. Philippians 6, 2, 6 is telling us that though Jesus outwardly appeared as a man, he was inwardly, he shares the same exalted essence and substance as God. And if he's not fully God, then there must be another way. Then you better start doing a lot of works. Get your little scale out and put, put your bad things on one side and put your good things on the other side and hope you do enough. See, if he's not fully God, there has to be another way to God. And that's why we hold to Christ as God. Notice that Paul has no doubts that Jesus is God in this text. There's no problems here. Paul is, is, is more concerned with us learning about humility. He, he wants us to be uh, seeing his deity so that we live for him. So what about that? Does it bring you, when you think about Christ and what he did, does it bring you to humility? thinking that Jesus shares the glory of God, yet veils it so he could die. Uh, let's go back to John real quick here, and then I'll try to wrap things up, and we'll get farther into this next week. These are things that are worth wrestling with. Go to John 17. This is what secures our faith, these truths laid down that the apostles taught. We teach as well. There's no change to them. But I want to show you this text again. We looked at this when I was going through the book of John, but I want to remind us again what he says in this prayer. He's in the garden now. He's just moments before Judas and those come to take him away. And he, they take him away. All the disciples flee and leave him alone. But this is just moments before this. He's in the garden. He's praying on our behalf. He's in anguish, but he's talking to his father about eternity past and future and present. He, he's relaying some tremendous truths. Uh, John 17, 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, verse 5, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. There's four thoughts that just come blowing out of this text. One, it says that Jesus possessed glory before his incarnation. The verse clearly says that. The glory that we shared together, the glory we had together, together means we equally had it together. 
your glory was my glory and my glory was your glory. So there's clearly in this text that the Lord Jesus Christ had the glory of God in its full understood essence and presence in substance before the incarnation in this verse. Second, it's clear that the glory was God's glory. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the foundations of the world. It's not some other glory. It's not God's glory and Jesus had his own little glory over here. It's a glory they had together. Third, Jesus did not have it in the incarnation. He says, return it to me. Now, Father, glorify me together with you with the glory which I had with you. So there's some kind of laying aside. There's some kind of veiling going on to this glory. Some kind of not taking up the, the right to his glory while he's on earth. He's doing something there. And then fourthly, as you read this, there's a sense in that Jesus did possess all the glory of God fully on earth because that's what he used to complete the plan. He's glorious. See, we look at a cross and blood and death and suffering and God judging him and we see glory, don't we? The world goes, what's the big deal with a cross? You guys got these things all over your place. This isn't glorious to them. So we see his glory. Not alone, not seeing it. I mean, we see it in his life. We were studying somewhere, I don't know which, where I was teaching this week, but we were talking about Matthew chapter 8, and he's asleep in the boat. He's wiped out, right? Why? He's been serving, feeding people, doing miracles, people asking him for everything under the sun, right? I mean, he's worn out, he's asleep. They're in a storm that seasoned sailors are scared to death. And he's asleep. I mean, I can't even get my mind around. How do you sleep like that? My boys will sleep in the car. You know, they're all over each other. Their heads are falling around. I guess it's possible when you're tired. <laughs> the point is, he's fully man in that boat, isn't he? I, the Bible says that the waves are coming over the boat. Was it warm water? Was it cold? I got a lot of questions here. <laughs> but it's a narrative, and it's just telling me he's tired because he's man. He, he has taken on human nature, and he's tired. Disciples, what, right? Remember? They wake him, right? They go, hey, don't you care that we're going to die here? And he says, ye of little faith. And he gets up, fully man and fully God, and says, be still. Water skiing, water. Isn't it amazing? Fully God, fully man. But yet, hear what our Lord does. And let me close with this thought and we'll move into communion. We'll get right back into this next week. Fully God, fully man. He veils that deity. Why? What are you going to do with him if he drops that veil like he did in Matthew 17 to the world? What if the world sees him for who he really is? What if they see that he's fully God like they did on the Mount Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, and they begin to build tabernacles and they begin to worship him and they see that glory dropped and they realize, hey, God is in our presence. What are they not going to do? They're not going to kill him. Because they can't. It is fascinating to think about that. The Lord veils his glory. He was equal, the Bible says in our text, he was equal with, with, with God. He didn't, he didn't see this thing as, as something that should be uh, regarded as less than. It's, it's regarded equal. It's not something for him to hang on to. He, yet he empties himself, and we'll get into this word a little more. It's a word kenosis. Uh, he empties himself, he veils, he shrouds his glory with humanity. So that, Almost 2,000 years later, we can celebrate communion this morning and say, look at him. This is what he did. He, he bodily died for me. He, he bled for me. Now, what's the context of the passage? What's the context of the passage? Boom, thank you. Are you humbled? 
that Jesus would do what he did for you and I? I, I was so overwhelmed again, and I've studied this text so many times, I forgot how many times I've studied this text, and this week as I sat at my desk, I said, oh Lord, I don't get it. Why? Why would you do this for us? We had absolutely nothing to offer you. And yet, you added humanity to your deity. See, Paul wants us to have this attitude that Christ has. Selflessness. Rescue others. Think of others. Is there a better example of someone who thought of somebody more than Jesus? Have this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus. Father, what an amazing text. We get lost in the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ did this for us. We get lost in the fact that here, God, fully equal with Christ, sharing the same essence and substance as Almighty God, creator, sustainer of all that exists, would take on the form of a man, the appearance of a man, the bond slave, the servanthood, in order to die, but not just any death, but the death of a cross, particularly the atoning work of that cross. And Paul says we need to think like this. So today, Lord, probably within moments after we leave this building, we are going to have choices of how we think. We can think very selfishly with our spouses, with our children, with our fellow church members here, Lord. Or we can think like Christ. Tomorrow morning, Lord, the choices will be overwhelming. By then, we have been told myriads of times by the world that we are to think of ourselves, Lord. Father, we need this teaching. Though I would guess that many of us, if not most of us, are saved in this building, Lord, we need this reminder. We suffer from the desires of this world at times. And yet, our Lord Jesus is leaving us the greatest example. So, Father, help us today that we would have this attitude, this thinking that was also in Christ Jesus. Lord, press this home as we celebrate the Lord's table this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As men continue to pass out the elements of the table, let me say this, that song is so profound. I love that song. And, and it is a song that comes right out of verses 9, 10, and 11. And that's what the great anthems of Revelations 4 and 5 and 7 are about. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, humbled himself and took on this appearance and this form, this morphe, God gave him everything, all praise. And, and, and so now as Christians, we, we look at this table and you have a, this little piece of cracker and this juice in your hands and, and it's not some just religious act we do. It, it reminds us that the Lord actually did what he said he did. He did add humanity to his deity, but remain fully God so that he could die on a cross. God could judge him for our sins and he could wash it all away by his own blood. It's beautiful. See, man can't come up with this stuff. They just constantly challenge it and try to change it and try to destroy it. This is God's stuff. This is, this is his way. And so communion is about that. It is about the worship of our Lord who humbled himself. We're going to spend next week in this text as well. I, I trust you'll be patient with me. 
It's, it's a beautiful text to teach us great things. Father in heaven, we thank you that you and your son in your full equality devised the plan to save man. Somewhere before there was time, before man in this world was ever here, you devised a plan to display your grace at the highest level. And you devised it to send your son, Lord Jesus Christ, so he could die for us. We here, 2,000 years later, remember that. And we just don't remember it for a remembrance sake, Lord. It is truly worship. Your spirit engages with us in this act because it exalts and spotlights Jesus Christ. So Father, though we remember communion time and time again, Lord, let it never be old. Let it never be a tradition. Let it never be a religious ceremony, Lord. Let it constantly be a reminder of your grace in our life. So Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for adding humanity to your perfection, to your nature, and perfectly living out this life in your humanity and dying for us. With great joy, Lord, we remember. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus, in fully man and fully God, died on a cross for you so that he could take away your sins and appease the wrath of God. We remember that through the bread. Take that. The Bible is clear that the life is in the blood. They remind the nation of Israel all the time that the life is in the blood. And so God had a plan and he demonstrated it over countless sacrifices throughout the Old Testament. Lambs, innocent, unblemished lambs died to hold off the wrath of God. Then he sent the final lamb. No more lambs. No more holding off the wrath of God. He sent the final lamb. And that lamb bled for you. So your sins are forgiven. So this morning, we remember that, that Jesus died and shed his blood for your forgiveness of your sins. Amen? Take drink.